Good morning, listeners. You are listening to Green Left Radio on FreeCR Community Radio on this fine Friday morning. So, good um, And for your presenters today, we have myself, Jacob, and me, Chloe. So, good to be back. Yeah, it's good to. Um, this is probably Chloe's first um, mm. show back in um, 2022. Um, we've just been rotating from different kind of present, um, different co-presenters for the um, for the past three weeks. But before I go into what we have planned for our program today. I'd like to acknowledge that FreeCR today is being broadcast to you from the wandry land of the Kulin Nation. We'd like to acknowledge that this always was, always will be Aboriginal land and that sovereignty has never been ceded. So I guess um, we want to sort of, for the first for our program today, I guess we want to sort of cover some of the highlights um, that have been happening in the past week in terms of current affairs and political news related to grassroots sort of movements. Um, maybe I'll get, yeah, Chloe, you want to sort of start off a bit of some reports? Actually, because following on mm. from our acknowledgement of country, we can't forget that January 26 was Invasion mm. Day, which happened on Wednesday. And in fact, yeah, there were quite a number of protests. Unfortunately, Melbourne didn't have a protest, but I do have an interesting kind of fascinating story to kind of report on related to that in Melbourne. But maybe mm. we'll start off by giving a bit of a discussion about the different uh, Invasion Day rallies that happened around the country. Yeah, thanks, Jacob. It was, um, yeah, it was a different Invasion Day for us here in Melbourne with, um, you know, we didn't have the, the big... Uh, um, invasion Day protests that we usually get involved in, but um, there were other marches that happened around the country. Um, thousands marched peacefully through the streets of Sydney, Canberra, I think also Brisbane, to mark Invasion Day on January 26th. Um, and you, and there was also a dawn service online for those who, you know, you might might have had to isolate. Um, and you can see some of those Invasion Day rally reports um, in those cities on the Green Left website if you want to check out the footage there. Um, 3CR also did a special broadcast featuring Indigenous voices. Um, you can still see in the studio here the um, you know, Indigenous colours and streamers and um, yeah, pictures um, you know, with the 50 years of resisting um, and still fighting, um, you know, all these... Um, Sovereignty never ceded. Yeah, there's all these, you know, really great decorations and things to remind us that, um, you know, it is actually a day of mourning. Um, and yeah, hopefully, um, listeners that, you know, weren't able to, to, to do anything, maybe, you know, you spent the day with, with your family or friends or in, you know, quiet reflection of Australia's colonial violence against First Nations people and that, um, the genocide continues to this day. Yeah, and um, I just also want to kind of note, and this is giving another plug a bit for some of the coverage on Indigenous rights that we have um, within um, this week's or the next few weeks of Green Left, but one of the special things about that happened 
um, around the Canberra protests was it's actually the fiftieth anniversary of uh, the, um, the of the tent embassy, um, which was first originally founded in Canberra in nineteen seventy two, and so Canberra actually had a special three day event which covered all sorts of things, and the second day was a big rally which um, had over thousands of people there, which I think is um, definitely a kind of impressive effort. Now, probably the the one story I sort of alluded to um, before was there was actually. As um as a consequence of there being probably no uh, because there was no there wasn't necessarily an invasion day rally called in Melbourne um this year there was a there was an interesting attempt by the far right to organise uh to organise a protest titled Make Australia Rock Again now I think there's sort of an element by which these right wing elements have you know. Every invasion day, there's always tens of thousands of people marching on the streets. And in fact, in Melbourne for the past several years, it has actually outnumbered the official Australia Day parade. Mm. And in fact, you get this sense from the federal government and of the Morrison government that there's almost this kind of attempt to try and claim, reclaim Australia Day from its... um, from its tarred image because it's been so solid over the years because of these consistent processes and which I would say rightfully. And so, yeah, you would, of course, you would have an element by which some groups of far right or right wing protesters, um, attempted to organize a protest titled Mike Australia Rock again. And there was going to be a counter protest on that day as well, organised by a campaign against racism and fascism, and I think the plan was to counter-protest against this and basically accept that they wouldn't, that these ideas shouldn't be allowed to mm. go on the streets unchallenged. However, we didn't end up having to counter-protest against this <laughs> protest, because this is where the story gets quite funny, where the basically the far-right protest got cancelled on January 26th, and... You know, I don't want to sort of laugh, but it is quite funny, um, give it, um, given the context. And this wouldn't be funny if it, if it happened to a left-wing protest, but because it's happening specifically to a right-wing protest, it's actually quite amusing. And so essentially, yeah, the co-organizer, the rally got cancelled because one of the co-organizers got COVID. Um, the same virus, um, and disease that, the far right have been downplaying the whole time from this pandemic, almost actually denying that the virus exists. And yeah, there's a sort of weird sense of strange irony that um, the protest would be cancelled because of this health concern when most of their supporters who are probably likely to attend the rally don't even believe COVID exists. So I'm not sure what difference it made to them, but it apparently did make a difference to the organisers. And so, yeah, the protest got cancelled, which was a... I, I think, in a sense, quite an amusing kind of turn of events. So, and um, but yeah, that's um, that's that's basically um, what what kind of happened. And I think, yeah, it was definitely a, it was definitely an interesting kind of it was definitely a fascinating kind of ironic kind of development. And I think it was a good thing that they didn't they weren't allowed to net, they didn't necessarily um, mobilize on the streets. <clears throat> mm, it was a it was a victory um, for the left. Um, but yeah, also, I mean, we don't we don't think it's funny that the, whoever got COVID, you know, hope they recover. But yeah, it is it is interesting that that was the reason that they cancelled um, the protest. But I also just wanted to, you know, also flag the fact that you know the way Invasion Day is being articulated um, and the way it's being talked about is is changing even at an institutional level. So you know, like the whole flag wearing 
are waving um, patriotic, you know, celebrations. I think are are becoming less apparent. So you know, we it's something to celebrate on the left that changes. It is happening. Um, people do see the 26th of January as a day of mourning, and um, yeah, it's a uh, yeah, it's I, I think it's it's yeah, maybe maybe it's a good change that we're we're seeing. Hmm. And I think the last kind of point to kind of make is yeah, I think the the fact that the the, the federal government and the establishment has um, every Australia Day always has always put some attempt to try and include Indigenous people within it, mm. uh, which is obviously very problematic. But you know the fact that they're attempting to is a good is a, a clear indication that they're facing pressure over these continuous sort of protests and the fact that in protests for indigenous rights have been mobilizing consistently and very strong numbers. Anyway, I thought I might just play I'll play a quick um announcement. You're listening to Green Left Radio on FreeCR Community Radio eight five five AM. We jail black males in Australia nationally at a rate five times greater than apartheid South Africa jailed black males in 1993. The suicide and self-harm rates are the highest in the world and the life expectancy gap is the biggest in the first world. You know, Australians don't like hearing the truth about how bad things are, but the more we resolve from it, the longer this is going to continue. Black fella, white fella, it doesn't matter what you colour. Mainstream media is not interested in this stuff. It doesn't find space to talk truthfully and deeply about issues that affect all Australians. The only place predominantly you will find that with any real depth is on community radio, and 3CR has been one of the great leaders in that. So if people are wondering where they should spend their hard-earned cash, I would suggest 3CR is a bloody good place to start. What your name is, we got the hell. Lots of changes, we need more brothers. All right, you're listening to Green Left Radio, and for this part of the program, we're trying to cover some of the headline and major kind of news developments that have been happening in the past week. Now, one news story I was, I was thinking that we should cover and give a bit of report on, and this is something that is happening uh, internationally, and that is the kind of scandal that has is engulfing um, Boris, um, the British Prime Minister Boris Johnson, right now. And in fact, we've actually sort of reported on this um, previously. Um, and in fact, at the time, it was sort of like almost in the realm of rumor, rumors. But basically, there are now some very kind of serious sort of allegations against the Boris Johnson government, uh, or against Boris Johnson and a number of parliamentary staff and some of his politicians that they allegedly um, organised parties um, during some of the strict... Um, at Dowling Street during lockdown. And in fact, that is obviously in a, in a lot of different ways is leading to a lot of public anger against mm. Boris Johnson because just for a bit of kind of context, the, they had, these politicians had literally flaunted lockdown um, restrictions that they were imposing on the rest of the population. And back in that time when those restrictions were in place, um, just to kind of give a bit of a recap, because currently we're not living with any restrictions right now, so it's a bit hard to envision, Britain probably had one of the more stricter sort of lockdowns where, you know, essentially people couldn't see their families, friends and so on. Of course, all for the greater good in terms of um, reducing the spread of COVID. That's um, There's nothing necessarily wrong with that. But it, there is a big problem when you have 
the pat when the the rich and the powerful those who are actually imposing the rules onto the rest of the population are willingly found to have been breaking the rules themselves because of their own entitlement and their own um, um, position of power. So this is definitely like, you know, I think people have a lot of right to be a uh, right to be angry at um, Boris Johnson. And in fact, the fact that Boris Johnson is constantly kind of is even refusing calls to resign. In fact, there's a lot of um, demand demands being put out there, just not not just from um, activists or left-wing activists on the ground, but, you know, broader society more even generally. Even his own party. Yeah, mm. even those within his own party are saying that he um, that he should step down. And, and of course, he he was, um, he, uh, Mr. Um, um, Boris Johnson was alleged to have, att- <laughs> well, he's definitely not alleged, he definitely attended uh, uh, a bring-your-own-booze event in the Garden of... Um, um, the Dowling Street offices in May 2020, but then of course he then started twisted and saying, "Oh, I'm not going to." Apo-, he apologised, but then twisted it by saying he felt he considered it a work gathering um, that fell within the rules, mm. which is just like you know when when you consider the the amount of policing that the British lockdown, um, some of the lockdowns had in Britain, like you know they had pr- they were pretty similar in some sense to the heavy lockdowns that we had, you know. I remember my friends in Britain kind of reporting that they would have there would be like police patrolling the sh- um, mm. the streets, making sure you're exercising and not drinking or not doing things you and shouldn't be doing. And you'll find if you were caught doing the wrong thing. So, yeah. so it's definitely like, and of course, this is also um, I mean, the midst of um, the government's own sort of handling of the COVID nineteen pandemic, which has been well below par. And so I think, yeah, definitely, I, I think this. Justified anger is definitely something that is, yeah, it's definitely, it says a lot about the, um, about, about, about Boris Johnson. Anyway, um, I think that's pretty much it. I might, um, in terms of that news story, I thought that would be, that would probably cover us in terms of some of the headline kind of news stories. And so I thought we'd get ready to, be, um, we'll get ready for our first interview for the program. We're going to be interviewing Sue Bull, um, who's a member of Social Science and also a health and safety, um, trainer, um, about, you know, the, qu- the question of how do you feel labor shortages in a non-exploitative way. You're listening to Green Left Radio on FreeCR 855 AM. Get your radical summer attire sorted. New stock of 3CR Radical Radio tees has just landed, featuring the iconic antenna design by artist Emily Floyd. As well as our basic black, we have a range of great pastel and primary colours in a variety of sizes. And for those radical little people, we have a short run of kids' tees available too. For just $30 for adults or $20 for kids, you can get yourself a local, ethically manufactured and printed tea that supports Radical Community Radio. We can send one out in the post. And there's Click and Collect from our studios at 21 Smith Street, Fitzroy. Or if you're fully vaxxed, you can drop in and browse our T-shirt rack during business hours. To purchase online, go to 3cr.org.au forward slash shop. Welcome back. You're listening to Green Left Radio on 3CR. And now we have an interview with Sue Bull, 
Um, Sue Bull is a union educator, a teacher, and a member of Socialist Alliance and a regular guest on the show. And we're going to be discussing how labor shortages can be filled in a non-exploitative way. Good morning, Sue. Good morning, Chloe. How are you? I'm good, thanks. Thanks for coming on the show. Um, so, so you've written an article in Green Left titled What Solutions for Labor Shortages? Um, there's a picture of a toddler on a on a forklift. In case any listeners missed that that news, it refers to this um, creative reaction after the prime minister suggested that to lower that age limit for driving forklifts. Um, you might want to talk about that later, Sue. Um, but the we are you know concerned about the you know labour shortages. Um, they have you know choked supply chains and. Job um, vacancies have skyrocketed in Australia, and all all sectors of the economy um, seem to be reporting higher vacancies. Um, and yeah, I, I guess you know we wanted to know, you know, are, are unions, you know, should are unions getting excited about about this? You know, are they taking advantage of this opportunity that we have right now? Um, you know, while they are in a strong bargaining position, um, have have the unions been making any gains? Mm, good question. <laughs> um, I think everyone's... Can I just first of all say I think that there's lots of um, observers that are aware of these shortages. Mm. So um, I think Australia always has had labour shortages, but the National Australia Bank did a survey recently and found that the shortages in some industries could be as high as 35% or as low, and this is not a low figure, as 19%. So I think what it's showing is that um, COVID has actually made, forced big gaps within the labour movement. And um, But what it's actually also highlighting is that those gaps have always been there and they've always been filled by um, layers of workers brought in on visas. So um, we can come back to that in a minute if you like, but um, that that's really what's been going on for decades now. Um, and... So whilst on the one hand you've got all this sort of thing that, you know, people coming in and taking our jobs, which is just not true, on the other hand, you've now got it sort of standing there exposed. Now, you would think that, yes, unions should be excited about this. And I think that there are, there is obviously a, a debate that's going on somewhere, not that we're hearing a lot about it. But um, I think at the moment, sadly, it's overlaid by a drive that we often see in pre-election periods where um, unions begin to bury some of their main concerns in the attempt to get Labor elected, you know, and there's a big push. (laughs) And, yeah, I mean, there's a level at which this is sort of a logical thing because nobody wants the Liberals to stay in forever. They're just so anti-worker and so anti-everybody. But what we've seen regularly in many, many election years now is where unions just subvert their campaigns to whatever's best for getting Labor elected. Mm. And that's not always the best thing for workers. Yeah. Well, I guess that kind of flows into the next kind of question, Sue, which is that given these impacts, the impacts of the COVID-19 pandemic on the on the kind of working class and how it's sort of impacting labour shortages, you also have the issue of health and safety as well. And of course, we can't ignore that one. Is And I guess 
when we're talking more in terms of the kind of ideals, what um, in terms of what are the things that should that unions should be demanding? What do you think are some of the demands that you know workers should be pushing their unions to demand? And of course, some of the other gains that they should be calling for, um, calling for, especially around safety in the workplace. Yeah, yeah. Um, okay. Well, I think that that's the first place to start. To be honest, I think we have to demand safety in the workplace and. Um, look, in the last two decades, there have been huge gains in terms of safety. I come from the construction industry, and in you know 1998, there was 18 or 19 construction workers in Victoria alone killed at work. <laughs> You've got to get your head around this. Whereas today, it's rare to have more than five or six killed at work, and most of those are in... Not, the, not on the commercial sites, only um, a third of those, um, you know, like two or three are on commercial sites. So there have been massive gains, no question, in every industry. But I think what we've seen in this last two and a bit years is um, the whole of society, whether government, unions, business, etc., trying to grapple with what safety means under COVID. And I don't think they've been entirely successful. In fact, I don't think they've been successful. Um, you know, like, just as a small example, it took ages for even the most basic level of safety, which is PPE. And to be honest, PPE comes at the bottom of the hierarchy of control, not the top. Hierarchy of control means control of safety issues. Like, at the top of the hierarchy is elimination, which we can't eliminate COVID at this point in time, so that's not an issue. But PPE, mask, comes at the bottom. It's taken two years for, for unions and business and everybody to get their heads around the fact that the best PPE in terms of masks are N95s. N95s are the best masks that you can get you know, as a general. I mean, there's better, of course, but as a general thing... We didn't, haven't even got around that, and there's still some unions not even demanding that level of safety at, before you get up to the high ones. For instance, kids are about to go back to school. Mm. Um, finally, there's some discussion about um, air filtration systems. This is two and a half years into the whole debate, into the whole co- uh, pandemic. Um, air filtration is an engineering control, which is much better than a mask, but we're only just getting that discussion now. Why? Because it's expensive. So it doesn't favour government departments and bosses and whatnot. They don't want to spend money on this sort of stuff. But finally, that's come into the debate. I think unions should have jumped onto those sort of things a lot earlier. So I think part of the problem is that in the attempt to sort of, you know, we're all in this together to try and see their way through, everybody's gone for cheap solutions, not the best solutions, and now we're, we're, we're fighting to keep up with the need to keep people safe in the workplace as we open up. And I don't think we're doing it very well. Yeah. Um, so, uh, yeah, thanks for telling us those statistics on worker safety. It is a particular concern um, also for migrant workers. And, you know, you were talking about, um, you know, the explo- exploitation of migrant workers to fill labour shortages that, you know, that are always... Um, uh, you know, they're always evident, they're always happening. It's just that, you know, they're just being reported on now. Um, but I was speaking to a few international students about 
how they felt about the relaxation of the rules around their visa restrictions all of a sudden and, you know, the rebates around the cost of their visas. Um, you know, now they can walk, work over 40 hours per fortnight. Um, and while some of them are happy about more freedom to work here, um, they haven't forgotten about, you know, how they were left out of things like job seeker and job keeper and, um, you know, they, they can't access things like Medicare and, and right at the start of the pandemic, um, you know, half a million international students were in Australia, you know, they lost their, their jobs. Um, and instead of supporting them, the government told them uh, back in April 2020 to go go back to their countries. Um, so and now the Morrison government, as you you know, you've uh, mentioned in your article that calling they're calling them back to the country. Um, these are mainly young migrant workers you know, who might be used as cheap labor. So I was going to, I wanted to ask you, are, are more unions speaking out about this? Um, you know, doing things like opposing backpack, backpackers um, being used as cheap labor. Oh, and if, if they aren't, why, why aren't they? Well, look, I, I think there is a debate going on. I mean, the, the United Workers Union has been trying to push this whole um issue about the exploitation of backpackers and student student workers. They've been trying to push it for, you know, several years now and they've actually been getting a bit of a hearing and, and doing some really, really good work. Um, you know, it's through it's through unions like that that we've started to get exposes about, you know, the rape of young women um, backpackers in isolated farming communities where they've been shockingly exploited and then sexually violated. I mean it's unions that expose that sort of thing, plus, you know, parents groups and so on. But, you know, it was unions like the UWU that led it. But no, I don't think that there has been a united um, approach to this. And I don't think the ACTU has been saying enough. I mean, the fact is, well, the Wednesday before last, um, Morrison said basically, look, you know, we're going to open up to 23,500 backpackers and, of course, they're mainly white backpackers from Northern Europe and 150,000 more international students. Um, that we want, And, he, you know, he actually says it in his, in his press conference that we want to fill... This is the international students, that we want to fill um, vacancies in the health system. <laughs> you know, because we know there's vacancies in the health system. Um, and we also know that most of these schemes do not offer full wages, full uh, working conditions, you know, decent working conditions, or even indeed any observance of any serious observance of health and safety. So we know that it's an exploited labour force. Uh, we know in the past they've been offered, you know, four, five, seven visas and all sorts of things, which are all temporary. Um, no concept that they can come and work here permanently, which is what a lot of these people want. No idea that they can bring their family, you know, forget the family reunification system, that's just sort of like a figment of our imagination. And um, at, at no discussion about the fact that often they just go for the, the cream of workers from overseas, denuding the countries of origin of, you know, really important um, labour uh, forces that actually contribute to that community there. You know, we just go and cherry pick and take the best. Um, no discussion around that. And to be honest, really no serious discussion once again from the unions or the ACTU. Um, partly, and this is not the sole reason, but partly because there's been this 
imaginary racist, this car, this, which is an imaginary debate, which is that um, overseas workers take, take Australian workers' jobs and playing into that dog whistling that so many Conservative governments, including Labor at times, I might add, have actually used as a way of keeping the Australian workforce divided, fighting amongst itself. Um, the fact is, we have got a labour shortage. People do want to come here. They should be allowed to come permanently for permanent jobs. Now, that needs to be the base where we actually start this debate, not at some tail end as we fix, you know, gaps that are genuine gaps that will be there pre-COVID, post-COVID, during COVID. Hmm. Well, your, this kind of, your response kind of brings up kind of two kind of questions. In fact, I'll probably go on one aspect of it and then I think Chloe will follow after me with a with a question related to the second kind of issue but one of the kind of interesting things you kind of mentioned there is basically you know this this phenomena of Australia a rich kind of global north country um, actually poaching workers, uh, healthcare workers off the global south whose healthcare systems are already struggling with COVID. Uh, and more importantly, a lot of these, uh, a lot of them are struggling without even access to vaccines, which is, um, one of the other, um, which is that we're struggling with our health, if our healthcare system is struggling enough with high vaccination rates, you can just imagine how much more worse it is within the global south. But that's that's a, that's my jumping off, I guess my jumping off point in a sense that you know when you look at you can look at countries like Cuba like that have shown consistent sort of global kind of solidarity, and I guess what do you think are the kind of non-exploitative kind of solutions that we could should be pushing for to actually resolve labour shortage because at the end of the day work does obviously this work obviously has to be done and I guess what are what are the sort of just sort of um, solutions that can be implemented as opposed to the ones that the government is already implementing. Okay, so many, so many issues. But I'll, I'll go back first of all to the to where I finished before. We have to demand that labour that comes to Australia receives permanency, and 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 they actually get permanent jobs. So that's a start. Because one of the problems with these temporary setups is that people are scared shitless that they're going to get deported. So why join a union? Why get involved in a campaign to increase pay and conditions when you think you're just going to get deported? So it was a deliberate strategy to keep people feeling scared, um, at risk um, and isolated. So that, that, that's been a deliberate strategy. So, that, so we've, got to, we've got to start doing that. So we've got to start demanding permanency on all levels. Secondly... Australia has to get back to giving aid to countries. Successive Labor and Liberal governments have cut their aid. So we no longer have aid programs. So workers have got no choice than to be cherry-picked in some cases because life back home in some cases is there are no opportunities for people, for well-educated workers. So without some sort of aid programs that increase support for countries, you know, whether it begins with aid for vaccination processes or whatever, whether it begins with aid to, to educate people and send them back so that they can actually play a role in their own communities, all sorts of schemes that used to happen in the past, they've all been cut. They've all gone. So we've got to get back to proper aid 
um, programs. This is one of the things that Cuba does really brilliantly. Cuba, it doesn't have a lot of money, so it can't necessarily send off lots of cash. But what it does do is it sends its workers, health and education and many, many others, to go and work in countries and support the local um, industries, the local services. That's what they do. We never do that. We've got no concept of that. So the first world has stopped doing that. You know, there are some groups, but they're charity groups. Um, you know, there's lots of charities like, um, you know, the one, without board, the one without borders, you know, that play an incredible role. But at the end of the day, that's not the solution. The solution has to be proper aid programs run by governments to help support um, local industries in, in, um, in much poorer countries modelled on the sort of thing that Cuba does. But, you know, we could do it on such a vast layer if, if, we, if we wanted to, and that's before you even start looking at how, you know, big companies massively exploit these countries to start with. So I think they're, they're some of your solutions. We've got to start having aid programs. We've got to start having, if we need workers, have to be offered decent wages and permanency, and it has to be done on a sensitive basis. We can't just cherry-pick the best. It actually has to be done on some sort of developmental scale. So I think that's that's the place to start. And unions can do this. This is actually where groups like a feeder originally came from. So it's not as if it, we're alienated, from, as if we don't know this stuff. We do know it, but recent years with under neoliberalism, everything's been cut back and... It's no longer talked about. Yeah, um, yeah. Unions uh, do need to take a stand against, um, you know, draining uh, poorer countries uh, of their uh, workers and, and their resources. Um, so your your article also mentions, um, you know, the, the fact that, um, well, Australia's racist border policies are saying, um, you know, th- that they're demanding that. The borders are, um, should be open, but excluding refugees. Um, you know, we still got um, around 1,400 refugees still in detention. Um, there are around 38,513 people seeking asylum, um, many who want to work and can't secure work permits. Um, you know, and, you know, there's there's this... <laughs> Like a lot of refugees are not eligible for Centrelink payments, but you know, and their risk of um, homelessness. But there is still this racist trope that they're joining Centrelink queues if they're let into the country. Then others say, oh, you know, they're stealing our jobs. So you know, there is a lot of um, you know that that racist um, narrative that still um, you know is embedded in our society. Uh, what what can you know ordinary people and and also you know the trade union movement do to challenge? this racist and um, nationalistic tropes of, you know, refugees and, you know, migrants coming to this country and stealing stealing jobs? Right. We have to support refugees. Mm. We, there's absolutely no question. When a whole lot of um, the progressive sections of the Labor movement stopped that overt support when Labor changed its policy in, um, I think it was 2013, um, I... You know, I was part of debates at the time where unions started saying, oh, look, we have to change our policy, otherwise Labor won't get elected. (laughs) And that was the end of the story. That was the debate. And everyone went, you are joking. 
um, you know, these are people who've got genuine reasons to leave their countries. Like, just look at Afghanistan recently, you know, who are, are being murdered, massacred, um, and Australia stands by and says, no, Fortress Australia, you can't come in. It's a joke. Yet suddenly business today, with all the shortages, wants open borders, and um, Morrison then allows 173,000 young people, young white backpackers and, 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 and Asian students, that's basically what it is, to come in. No questions asked. Come in, come in, on a temporary basis, of course. Yeah. Um, whilst there's 40,000-odd refugees sitting there, either locked up or can't work or, you know, desperately trying to get a visa. It's appalling. And that's before we even look at the number that is sitting throughout parts of Indonesia, Malaysia, wherever, desperately trying to reunite with their families or escape, you know, penurious situations. They're, they're desperate to come here. They've already shown over successive generations in Australia that they want to be they want to be educated, they want to do jobs, they want to make a commitment, they want to do everything they can to be part of the community here. They've shown that keenness so many times and they're ignored. And frankly, the Labor movement is closing their eyes to this. Um, that's not to say that there aren't sections, unions that are doing a great job and, you know, that, that actually play a really, really good job with the refugee community and are there at the rallies and so on. Or churches, there's been some, you know, great efforts made by churches, you know, who are still groups that organise people in this community. Um, but the, the, the bulk of the labour movement is ignoring it. You know, there was very little response to Morrison's press report last from last week beyond the whole thing of reducing the age limit for, for people to actually drive forklifts, which, you know, people genuinely came out and panned, and so they should have. But the rest of his speech, which had all of these gems hidden in, ignored. No one, no one from the Labor movement said a word about the 40,000 asylum seekers. You know, that's just disappeared off the agenda. Um, we have to bring that back to the forefront of the debate. If we don't, we will not be able to have a non-racist discussion about the labour movement um, shortages in this country at the moment. Yeah, and it's quite interesting. We've been um, talking about how a lot of about a lot of different things and how you know how these sort of different kind of top how all these kind of issues is raising all these kind of debates that the union movement needs to be kind of taking up from but actually one kind of the the one implication about that is coming out of these um, labor shortages and this is actually a very important debate uh, for socialists for people on the left but basically or, 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 um, or labor is kind of organized within, within a particular market, including teaching. And so I just recently kind of read a, a, a status by Daniel Andrews sort of coin because they're predicting teacher shortages because of, um, as a result of COVID, they're calling on, um, retired, um, teachers to help assist with teaching. Now, of course, there's obviously, there's an issue of health and safety kind of there because, you know, they generally come from the age groups that are most at risk Mm. of COVID. And, of course, you you want to sort of necessarily invite risk, but, of course, that's not necessarily the most important thing there as well because, basically, what this is kind of putting, um, this whole question of the labour shortages is actually posing is 
it's actually showing that the market is actually failing. And in fact, in a different society, a society with a planned economy, we would be much better at adapting uh, to the challenges that this pandemic is kind of bringing to, um, to the workforce. And I guess want to hear your sort of comments because it is a very big um, and we can probably make it the final sort of um, question because I think that's where I think the last kind of question I think your article kind of leads to, even if it doesn't directly go into it. Yeah, no, <laughs> we're we're in for some very very serious challenges, Jacob. Like, I started teaching in the late nineteen seventies, and at the time, Australia had a huge shortage of teachers. Huge. It was towards the end of that shortage period, but it was a massive shortage. And the way they dealt with it is they um, offered um, various different things to, to American teachers to come out here. So the period when I began teaching, we had a lot of American teachers, many of them stayed, by the way, and they, they, they wanted to change. Um, I actually think we're possibly facing that again. So how are we going to have this debate? You know, are we going to have it on a racist basis? Well, I've already said I don't. I think that's definitely the wrong way to go. Are we going to have it on a cherry picking cherry picking basis? That's the wrong way to go. Are we going to have it on the basis of an open society where people get permanent work? That's the place to start. So we've got to do it in that way. But you're right. It's all based on the market. It's not actually based on planning. And if COVID has shown anything. No government in Australia has had a planned approach to, to safety in terms of workers under COVID. Everything's been done knee-jerk. Everything, whether we, we've, we've opened up in a knee-jerk way. We haven't had the rats. We haven't had the, um, you know, like, like so many things don't work. So many things were not there. We haven't had the policies, da-da-da-da, because unfortunately, being labour market driven, everything's based on, you know, trying to get the cheapest price you can for labour. So, for instance, the whole lot of um, public sector workers at the moment desperately trying to get pay rate, what, what, uh, pay increases. Um, there's health workers, like from Barper and places, who are desperately trying to get enterprise agreements with a decent pay increase, and they're being offered peanuts. And so what you're seeing is the market principle riddling the whole labour movement from top to bottom... Um, the inequities that follow, the unfairnesses and the exploitations that follow are appalling. In a properly planned approach, we would have seen an increase, for instance, in wages for agricultural labourers. So massive shortage, everyone's been sent home, nobody to pick the strawberries, um, raise the wage rates. Let's see if we can train people. Training, training, apprenticeships, all of those sorts of things. It would have all been planned and you were able to look at your your domestic situation and work out how you're going to get people from A to B months, years before you even actually have to address the situation. It would be a planned process, proper training, you know, recruitment, um, the whole works. But, of course, it can't happen, not in that way at the moment, because everything's based on the labour, so on, on the market. So whilst you've got market capitalism operating from a market perspective, we're only ever going to get knee-jerk things which involve huge exploitation, um, inequity and racism. And we haven't even got on to the impact on women, on women workers, 
um, you know, that, that's just another crisis that continuously gets stopgapped rather than being addressed. You know, the, the, the sexual violence within workplaces, it's still there after we first raised it in the 80s. So, you know, none of these things are being planned or addressed in any long-term way. It's all stopgap and knee-jerk, and it is because of the role of the market. So, yes, I agree with you. Yeah. Well, right. thank you um, very much, um, Sue. Um, uh, maybe I'll call oh, you. Oh, well, did you have any other questions? Jacob? Oh, no, I don't have oh, any okay. final comments. Yeah. Oh, well, thank you. Thank you, Sue, for joining us. Um, you know, let's hope we can work with our unions and, you know, put put a bit more, put more pressure on them to, to use this um Currently defined short um, shortage of labour to, to demand better pay and working conditions and permanent contracts for all and hopefully increase um, union membership and worker solidarity with refugees and migrant workers and um, you know people like backpackers and international students uh, and thank you for your commitment to this as well. Um, but before we let you go, did you have any final comments or anything you wanted to, to plug? No, not really. Thanks for all that. I mean, I think the, the way forward now is workers have to start demanding that we get back to mass meetings again. Um, you know, let's have a delegates meeting. The ACTU met last week. Let's have a delegates meeting. You know, it could be a hybrid one. We could have some in person and some online. But we need to start letting rank-and-file workers talk about the issues and finding collective solutions. So thank you. That's right. Thanks, Sue. Thank you very much, Sue. <clears throat> All right, we we're just having a discussion with Sue Bull, um, member of Social Alliance and also health and safety um, trainer, basically about having a bit of a um, drawing on her article. Um, what are the solutions for the labour shortage? And basic and having a bit of a, a, a kind of long discussion, going following, following focusing on all the different kind of themes that um, um, had came out of that article. But yeah, I might just go play a quick announcement, and you're listening to Green Left Radio. We jail black males in Australia nationally at a rate five times greater than apartheid South Africa jailed black males in 1993. The suicide and self-harm rates are the highest in the world and the life expectancy gap is the biggest in the first world. You know, Australians don't like hearing the truth about how bad things are, but the more we resolve from it, the longer this is going to continue. Black fella, white fella, it doesn't matter what you colour. Mainstream media is not interested in this stuff. It doesn't find space to talk truthfully and deeply about issues that affect all Australians. The only place predominantly you will find that with any real depth is on community radio, and 3CR has been one of the great leaders in that. So if people are wondering where they should spend their hard-earned cash, I would suggest 3CR is a bloody good place to start. What your name is, we've got the hell. Lots of changes, we need more brothers. All right, you're listening to Green Left Radio, and I thought we'd use a bit of an opportunity to take a bit of a breather, and so we'll play a bit of a song. So I was going to play in play um, "Watch Me Disappear" by Audrey March. You're listening to Green Left Radio.
You're back listening to Green Left Radio on 3CR 855 on your dial. Um, Jacob, do you just want to say the name of the song that you just played? Oh, yeah. We were listening to Watch Me Disappear by Aldrin March. Thank you. And now we're just going to just be discussing a few more news articles in Green Left. Um, one is called is titled Shambolic WA Health is Not COVID-19 Ready by Polly Watkins in Perth. Um, so the, the Western Australian Premier uh, Mark McGowan announced on January 20th that the border is set to reopen on um, or the border that was actually set to reopen on February 5th is going to remain indefinitely closed. Um, and that's, you know, as, as um, you know, the rest of Australia's borders are open, um, other states have opened their borders and Omicron cases have spiked. Um, the government has said that, you know, they want th- that the 90% vaccination target is not enough um, and they're seeking higher rates of the booster adherence and for COVID-19 cases to stabilise before determining the reopening date. Um, and this this hard WA border has really been um, central to the government's popularity since um, they introduced it back in April 2020. Um, and as well as um, federal and state government's criticism, um, so much so that Labor's landslide victory last March was seen as this um, was like a, like a referendum on the matter. Um, but there hasn't been very much media attention on, you know, doctors and nurses. Um, you know, they've been warning um, the government for months that there is a, a huge problem with the WA healthcare system. It's it's reaching a breaking point. Um, you know, it's you know this is because of you know years of um, this is what comes from years of funding cuts um, and a refusal to properly invest across both the metro and regional areas of the state. Um, that said, um, under pressure, McGowan did allocate an extra 400 million to to health late last year. Um, but you know, this um, I don't know if people remember this really sad case of a, a young uh, girl passing away in the hospital. She was only seven years old, um, and it you know it was the result. Her, her death was the result of um, you know it is believed that it was a result of um, public um, of, of staff shortages. Um, and after this inquiry into that case, um, you know it was later. You know, the, the inquiry actually led to um, what was known as a, described as the staff were exhausted and demoralized. So, um, yeah, this is yeah, it's just um, it is it is a it is in crisis. Um, I don't know if Jacob wanted to you know discuss more on this. Yeah, well, join I guess um, more I guess more from the kind of article that is basically I mean just it, the the WA healthcare system is is almost a bit of a special cut. Kind of case in mm. this kind of con- in the country, while generally all across Australia, um, most most of our healthcare systems haven't necessarily coped f- with um, with COVID, and of course they've always had the issues of kind of underfunding and and so on. Basically, the central point I sort of like to make there is even prior to the introduction of COVID, um, the healthcare system has needed a lot of work, but in the case of WA. WA, I think, 
healthcare system has been characterised by really very much severe underfunding. And of course, you know, the original sum for the health budget over 2020 was 0.3636% less than the previous year, and another 3.72% uh, is cut, uh, is proposed for 2022 to 2023. Yet, the government at the same time, and of course, this is one of the more interesting sort of elements, um, they have bo- they have boasted about a 5.6 billion budget surplus, and mm. so this is a government that is this is a state government that is actually sitting on a larger surplus than probably any other state government in um, right now. And one of the reasons actually for that is because of is is actually due to the fact that um, mining is one of the most central kind of commodities within um, WA. In fact, there's actually even been speculation in. Because basically, I mean, we're, we're sort of discussing a bit more the politics of the hard border last week, but there's even kind of like speculation analysis that kind of argues that, well, actually, the while Mark McGowan is running on a whole, you know, keep Western Australia safe from COVID, mm-hmm. um, and in fact, you know, that there is a, it is quite a special situation in the case of WA because we have to acknowledge the context that WA has in a sense been living in a different reality from the past, um, from the rest of Australia in the past two years. And that is something that is quite unprecedented. They've essentially been living COVID free for the past two years and have essentially had all the, re- all the sort of, you know, no restrictions, none of the, you don't have to worry about wearing face masks, et cetera. Although right now there's currently an outbreak potentially happening in WA. So there's a potential possibility that the WA hard border question will probably be resolved automatically by the fact that COVID is just get to get into the um the, the country but yeah the speculation about the hard border is basically is basically it's not necessarily entirely driven by public health but also driven by certain economic considerations and that is the fact that mining um is a massive industry and um the wa government does not want to um, open the door to anything that could um, that could present any disruption to um, to the mining industry. So yeah, that's often that is a bit of a debate though within I think openly, but I think it's just an interesting sort of thing to bring up in the context of all these questions, and it just raises all these questions when you look at the the, the state of the WA healthcare system, which is not even necessarily ready for. Um, for any pre-COVID sort of situation. In fact, it's already suffering from underfunding. And I think, you know, there's, there needs to, there needs to be, you know, there needs, as, as sort of Polly sort of brings up, you know, federal governments ha- and state governments have had two years to implement mm. local recruitment and, tra- and straining strategies to bolster the failing health service. And they have chosen not to act. And I think the kind of point that, mm. um, you know, one of the biggest challenges with this whole scenario is, there's no, there's no possible way that the WA government is going to actually get to change their policy. They, they can't sh- shift, change the healthcare system in two months because that, that's like by its nature impossible. But what they could be doing, and in fact, this is what Polly kind of points to, is we could be putting the pressure on the WA government to fast track, um, the straining of healthcare, um, professionals, etc. It almost kind of feels like, you know, they're almost trying to ride out um, the whole COVID um, situation, um, thinking that oh well maybe this maybe the COVID situation will pass and therefore we won't have to ever invest in healthcare. But actually, you know, COVID looks like it's got to be here with us for quite a while. Um, that's obviously a main consideration. Um, but yeah, 
the, the fact is the healthcare system wasn't even ready anyway, uh, isn't even considered good anyway in its own right, um, even prior to the introduction of, of COVID. And I think that it represents a huge problem. And I think, yeah, we definitely need to put in the pressure on the WA government to fast track the training and fast track the increased funding of healthcare. And they should also make, um, as it points out in the article, they should also make education free, um, especially during a pandemic, trying to train all these um, new nurses, um, you know, trying to get fast track medical students, um, you know, to become, uh, you know, fully fledged doctors in, you know, well, a shorter period of time. And they're still being charged um, to study and, you know, and, and healthcare workers are still having to to pay for childcare. So, you know, these are things that could all could all help with the with the with um with the healthcare system, but they're not doing it. Yeah, actually for our listeners, actually following on from an earlier discussion, you know, that's actually something just just coming to mind. You know, the question around free childcare mm. You know, it's, it's quite, it speaks kind of volumes actually about our federal government. They're so concerned about labor shortages caused by, um, um, caused by COVID. Surely they could, um, they could think about, oh wow, maybe we could consider making childcare free because if you made childcare free, that would actually increase, massively increase the participation of women who, um, want to, um, um, work in the workforce. And it's just, yeah, that's just like, just thought I'll just bring attention to that because I think yeah it's just a classic example of a solution that the capitalist class is not willing to implement, um, even when it even when it comes to even when it comes to addressing a really real issue of labour shortages caused by a, a pandemic. Not only are they not offering free childcare, they're letting childcare businesses close, like they're letting them close down. So many have closed down over the pandemic. Yeah, mm. and um, and yeah, it was all, it always relates to that. Like, you know, um, we made childcare free at the start of 2020 mm. in the pandemic, um, but they were very quick to reverse that um, very right. quickly. Okay, well, um, maybe we might conclude the discussion on this story, but I'll just um, um, let um, for listeners, you can read more of the article on the Green Left website, and it's titled "Shambolic WA Health Is Not COVID-19 Ready." So, yeah, I think this um, definitely a wor- an important kind of article and an important piece of the discussion in terms of um, the WA government. Okay, well, I might just go. I might just go play. I'll play a quick announcement. Um, you are listening to Green Left Radio on FreeCR eight five five AM. You know, there's people, like you said, have been on casual for seven years. Well, it's supposed to be casual employment. People want full-time jobs. They don't want to be sitting there casual, not knowing they're going to get any any days, any leave or what's, whatsoever. Especially, you look at all the casuals in the, our industry at the moment, they're sitting home. You know, people want full-time employment, and they, sh- they should be entitled to That's full-time right. employment. And look at all the people who were used and abused as casuals in the aged care sector and all the problems that are facing people now and all the deaths that are following. In the meatworks, a lot of that's casuals, labour hire, you know, you've got blokes travelling around, you know. We want full-time positions and, you know, that's... And people want it. We want to be full-time employed. You want to have your Christmas holidays. You want to have time with your family. But when you're a casual, you get none of that. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio 855 AM on digital and online. 3CR Radical Radio.
You're, you are listening to Green Left Radio, and um, I thought it would be time to give a bit of a plug for the Green Left Actors Calendar. Now, this is probably going to be a bit all over the place, um, but we're just wanting to highlight a, a number of kind of different events that are sort of coming up. I'll get Chloe to just highlight the first sort of event. There's a um, basically a refugee protest happening uh, this Sunday. Mm, it's just correct me if I'm wrong. It's this, yeah. It's a rally for freedom, um, offering from the heart, uh, and it's. I think it was being put together by a group called Fight Together for Justice, um, who organise daily protests outside the Park Hotel in Lincoln Square in Carlton. Uh, and this this rally is going to be on Sunday at 2 p.m. outside the Park Hotel, um, where around 37 refugees remain indefinitely. Um, held hostage there. Um, so that's, um, yeah, Lincoln Square in Carlton, if people want to get down there this weekend, this Sunday. Yeah. Okay. Um, I'll, and now the next kind of event I want to sort of highlight, and there's actually just, I'm just trying to look for different political events coming. There's unfortunately not as much sort of happening, although I just will note that the daily protests, as far as I know, are happening for refugee rights outside the Park Hotel. And I think they're generally happening at five o'clock every day, yep. and then I think two o'clock on the weekends or three o'clock. So yeah, that's just one thing to kind of note. But some of the events I want to sort of highlight is that one event I will highlight is there is going to be a public forum, um, COVID nineteen um, disaster um, workers. What was it? Workers fight back. Workers fight back. Um, and it's going to be a public forum organised by Green Left and Socialist Alliance. And it's going to be happening on Friday, the 11th of February. And it's going to feature a panel of union speakers. And it's going to be happening at 6.30pm at the Maritime Union of Australia office, um, which is in North, um, West Melbourne. But the event will also be happening online. So check the Green Left website Um Event, um, when um, the details get finalised. But, yeah, that's definitely happening on Friday, the 11th of November. Um, now, I'm trying to find, yeah, I'm just trying to find some other events that sort of are coming. Yeah, it's not, yeah, unfortunately, just I think due to the sort of Omicron sort of wave, um, there's not as many political mm. events happening. And there's actually also less sort of online events also happening because I, I think we've sort of been going for a bit of a transition in sort of client where while, while, a lot of um, groups are opting for um, hybrid beans. There's sort of, yeah, there's just not as many sort of political events. Um, I will note that in March, um, pay attention to the month of March because I think there is looking likely there will be a number of protests happening in that period. So, mm, yeah. March for Justice rally as well. Yeah. So mm. I think those should all be kind of important sort of events to, um, to, get, uh, to get around to. Okay, well, um, I might um, I might just use one opportunity um, just to play another song, and we'll probably get to play some more music once we interview Matt Ward. Um, but yeah, I was going to play um, Emily Ruamara um, playing the song uh, Naglaru Kinwujin. Um, you're listening to Green Left Radio. <laughs> Good long wa, 
You're listening to Green Left um, Radio, and we're just playing a song by Emily Romara. And now we are in for our second interview for the program. Um, we're very happy to have Matt Ward. Um, Matt Ward is actually is a musician who has actually just recently released a new album titled Why I Protest. And Matt Ward has also been a regular com- columnist for Green Left. And in fact, um, when it comes to Green Left, he generally does all the kind of re- album kind of roundups, like covering all the sort of different sort of left wing sort of music um, that um, that um, comes out every year. So yeah, good morning, Matt. Hi, how are you going? Thanks for uh, having me on. I know you guys put a lot of hard work into this show, so I appreciate it. Yeah. Well, um, 
Matt, what I guess maybe to kind of start off um, the discussion, um, what can you tell us about this new album that you released, um, Why I Protest? And in fact, for our listeners' information, after following this interview, we'll actually play a track from the album, which should hopefully be good. Yeah, tell us a bit about it. Um, well, like yourself and many of your listeners, I've been going to protests for years. Um, but I, as I was listening to the chants, I often thought they could be changed into um, sort of catchy songs that had a completely different cadence from, from the, the chants. Um, so I spent about uh, six months putting a load of riffs together on my phone, like composing them all on my phone. Uh, so I had about 100 riffs, and then I chose the best handful that would fit the protest chants best. So I had about, you know, about 20 or 30 protest chants and then chose the ones that would fit best and then wrote all the lyrics around that and built them into songs. So this just came out um, last Friday, a week ago. Yeah. And um, what can you, I guess what can you, um, I want to kind of hear a bit more in detail about, I guess, some like how, what are some of the kind of music sort of influences you kind of try to use to, in terms of trying to blend in these sort of protest kind of chants? Okay, so because I did the monthly albums roundup for Green Left, that involves listening to about 350 or more different genres um, every year, so so Spotify tells me. So um, I wanted to do something that was different and not, like nothing else out there in, in terms of the sound. Um, I, I spent about 12 years being a, a cheesy raver, you know, going to raves and listening to very fast uh, jungle music. Um, so that's the bass sound of it is the, like 174 BPM jungle music, but I, I blended it with a very cute sort of genre called future bass and then with my sort of indie vocals over the top uh, it sounds like nothing else i've heard out there so um that's what i was trying to do with the sound just trying to do something different oh yeah well that um and i guess um i want to kind of hear also a bit more about i guess some of the political influences like i guess in terms of like what is in terms of creating this kind of album is there sort of like is there kind of is there like a political kind of message that you're kind of wanting to sort of focus on in terms of, you know, the music that you're kind of producing here, especially since it is obviously drawing on your experiences of being involved, going to protests and, and yeah, I just want to kind of hear a bit more about that. Yeah, it's, in, it's informed a lot by Green Left, you know, because uh, I've been writing for that for 13 years, I think. So um, that always gives you uh, an entirely different angle on the news uh, than you get in the mainstream media. It's very refreshing in that way. You find a lot of holes filled in your in your vision of what's going on. Um, you're only getting half the story, basically, if you if you follow the news from the mainstream media. So it's it's all based on every single aspect of um, what's what's going on in the news and and what the alternative non-corporate view might be of the world. Um, obviously. The album could have covered far more, but it was all down to which protest chants fitted the riff, the most catchy riff that I came up with. So it's, um, you know, it's narrowed down to uh, 11 or 12 on the normal album and 14 on the on the free bonus version. It's free on Bandcamp. And if you download the Bandcamp version, you get a PDF uh, booklet that's hyperlinked, fully hyperlinked, explaining all the lyrics. So it links to all. Um, news stories from the likes of Green Left um, explaining uh, exactly what the lyrics mean. 
Oh, thanks, um, Matt. It's Chloe here. I'm interviewing you with Jacob as well. Um, really excited Hi, about your new album. Um, and I know you've worked with a lot of First Nations artists and you have a track called Always Was, Always Will Be. Um, can you tell us um, a, a bit about some of the First Nations artists you've worked with? Sure, yeah. Um, when I started writing for, like, doing voluntary writing for Green Left, um, I noticed a lot of Aboriginal rappers throughout the country were making all this incredible music, but didn't, didn't but, but weren't getting any coverage. So I started interviewing them for Green Left, and um, ended up with like 37 uh, different interviews from artists all around the country that are put into a book called Real Talk, Aboriginal Rappers Talk About Their Music and Country. So a lot of those artists had befriended from interviewing them. And then they um, worked with me on various past tracks. I would often get them to guest on the album. Uh, there's a very popular rapper called Lucky Luke, who's an outback out rapper from Mount Isa who appears on this Why I Protest album as well, on a track called um, Why Are You in Riot Gear? We Don't See No... I Don't See No Riot Here. So that really um, relates on a personal level to his people. You know, they're always getting hassled by police and so on. So a lot of those artists, um, First Nations artists that I've worked with in the past, uh, are for that reason. Um, but uh, they were... Rappers were always saying to me, oh, you should do your own vocals. So I've always hated the sound of my own voice, as I'm sure a lot of you, you people on radio have uh, had to get used to the sound of your own voice. Everyone hates the, hates the sound of their own voice. Um, so I, I got over that when your, your fellow presenter, Zane, uh, told me that you eventually get used to uh, hearing the sound of your own voice and uh, you, you get over the fact that you hate it. So that was a great, great advice from Zane and... Um, that's what I did on this album, you know, was doing my, all my own vocals. Yeah. So this, sorry, you were asking about Always Was, Always Will Be Aboriginal Land. Yes. That, that song opens the album, um, and it basically, the, the lyrics say, I grew, up, I grew up in England depressed because there's no sunshine. Mm. Um, one day a mate said, down under, there's nothing but good times. I said, I've, I've got 1,500 quid because my grand died. I said, let's split the cash and fly to the sunshine. So that's my story is how I came to Australia. But of course, when I got here, I thought the place was mind-blowing, so beautiful. The sunshine made me feel normal for the first time in my life. Um, so I really wanted to live here. But then over time, I found that me feeling normal came at a great expense uh, to the Aboriginal people who've had their land stolen. So um, the song describes that whole process of learning what's gone on in the past and in the present and how I feel, you know, the country would be in far better state if the Aboriginal people were in charge. Hmm. Well, um, I'm just going to, I was going to kind of conclude the interview, um, making, giving you the opportunity to make any final comments and also how people can listen to your album. And of course, we'll definitely, um, following this, um, the conclusion of this interview, we'll play uh, a track from your album. I'm thinking we might actually play Always Was, Always Will Be Aboriginal Lands, especially since we've been talking about that. Um, so yeah, Matt, any kind of final comments and also how people can actually purchase this album and support it? The, uh, the album's free, free to download um, on Bandcamp. Uh, you just enter zero as the amount. Um, to find it, it's mattward.bandcamp.com. I spell my name with one T, M-A-T-W-A-R-D.bandcamp.com. 
but it's also on every single platform on all, all the um, all the streaming services, including the evil Spotify. So uh, yeah, just Google Matt Ward Wire Protest M A T W A R D, or you can go to Green Left and type in Matt Ward or Protest Albums. And uh, there's always a link to my music at the bottom of the monthly political albums roundup that I do for Green Left. All right. Well, um, thank you very much, Matt, um, for being on our program. Thanks, um, Matt. I definitely, I definitely thought it was very fascinating hearing mm-hmm. from you know all the sort of inspirations I've, and especially how much um, how much uh, your insp- influence seems to draw from Green Left, which is yeah. <laughs> uh, very rarely do we feel like a few. It feels like um, it feels like we're we're kind of like a part of. <laughs> Your 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 al- um the album you've produced like the program we do in Green Left Radio and so on. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And you'd be surprised how many well-known artists out there around the world read Green Left. Because when we tag them on Twitter, uh, when we include them in the in the in my monthly albums roundup, they often respond by saying, oh, "I've been reading Green Left for years," you know. Yeah. Well, thank you very much, Matt. And um, yeah, for our listeners, we'll get a we'll play we'll be playing a track from this new um, from Matt Ward's new album, and um, we'll, and the song we'll play will be "Always Was, Always Will Be" Aboriginal land. Um, following the close in this interview, um, you're listening to Green Left Radio, and thanks again, Matt. Thank you. All right. So as I kind of said before, I'm gonna I'll play uh, I'll play a copy. I'll play "Always Was, Always Will Be" Aboriginal land by Matt Ward. Um, you're listening to Green Left Radio. I grew up in England, depressed, cause there's no sunshine. And mate said, down under, it's nothing but good times. I got 1,500 quid, cause my granddad, I said, let's split the cash and fly to the sunshine. Always was and always will be Aboriginal land, always was and always will be Aboriginal land, always was and always will be Aboriginal land, always was and always will be. The sky so blue When I felt that sun in my bones I felt brand new When I tasted the food their quality was Like nothing I knew When I saw the beauty around me I went boo-hoo-hoo Yeah. 
Just listening to Always Was, Always Will Be, Aboriginal Land by Matt Ward, um, who as a musician we were just interviewing Brian before. And um, Chloe also wanted to mention... Matt Ward, um, you know, kept referring to Green Left. He's been writing for Green Left since... Oh, well, he's been writing for Green Left for many, many years. Um, and he also wrote a book... Um, called Real Talk, Aboriginal Rappers Talk About Their Music and Country. So check it out. Check out his new album and, yeah, keep keep an eye out for his articles in Green Left because he usually gives a good, um, yeah, he usually compiles the best political music to listen to. So, yeah. Yeah, and in fact, to give um, special credit to Matt, um, I'm pretty sure he is the only person who is doing like a column like this that actually tries to pick out what is the mm. some of the left-wing kind of music that's coming up. Because, yeah, music is a form of expression. And it's always been known as a form of political expression. So, yeah, the fact that he is... He has actually put the effort into highlighting it. In fact, and Green Left has been um, a platform for it. He's, I think, is you know actually quite a significant kind of achievement in itself. It's like a small thing, but it's like... Yeah, it's something that is the fact that he has kept it up and the fact that it, it's consistent is um, very good. In fact, yes. that no one else is kind of doing it. It's very credible, yeah. Yeah. Well, um, we're getting into, I guess, um, the end of our program. Um, we have like a few minutes left. So I thought I would um, spend the last few minutes. Um, maybe we'll go. I'll thank, I'd like to thank all our listeners for kind of tuning in this week. I'll also like to give a bit of a plug to Green Left. Um, so Green Left is uh, the, the alternative left-wing newspaper that is that forms a part of Green Left Radio. Um, and in fact, um, Green Left Radio off, uh, always draws from um, the pages of Green Left, even in terms of the interviews and the discussions we um, we kind of bring to the air. It's always been around, you know, raising the the stories of the oppressed, um, struggling for a better world. And so, yeah, give one a bit of a plug that you know, if you if you enjoy the work we do with Green Left Radio, uh, consider becoming a, a supporter of Green Left, and you can just become a supporter on Green Left by going on to greenleft.org.au forward slash support. Uh, you are listening. And yeah, and I uh, think, yeah, it's only like $5 a month or $10 a month. But maybe, Chloe, if you had any sort of final words oh, you yeah. would make. Yeah, please support Green Left. Um, there are lots of hardworking writers, um, you know, largely volunteer-based, um, and there aren't many papers, uh, newspapers like it. Um, it's, you know, it's it's one of a kind. It, it It's well-informed um, news and analysis, um, 
you know, really um, credible non-sectarian, um, you know, there's not many, you know, papers like Green Left that, that you know, um, have had such a, an influence on me. So, um, yeah, um, yeah, subscribe for as little as $5 a month. Okay. Well, and keep uh, listening. Yeah. All right. Well, I think we'll go and um, conclude our program there. Once again, thank all our listeners. Um, stay tuned for a re- rerun of Earth Matters, which is going to be following on after this. And yet, um, the podcast of this should be getting uploaded later today. Um, so you should be able to listen back on any content you might have missed and just go on to the FreeCR, www.freecr.org.au, or you can even check our Facebook at Green Left Radio um, for all the kind of updates. But yep. Thank you, I want thanks again for um, for tuning in. You are listening to Green Left Radio. This brings us to the end of the show. You have been listening to Friday Morning Breakfast with Green Left Radio, brought to you by Green Left Weekly Newspaper, which brings an alternative source of information that puts people and planet before profit. If you like our work, become a supporter from $5 per month at greenleft.org.au slash support or free call 1-800-634-206. Arise, you workers from the slumbers. Arise, you prisoners of want. For reason in revolt now thunders and at last since the age of Kant. Away with all your superstitions. Serve all masses. Arise. We'll change henceforth the old tradition and spurn the dust to win the prize. That's right, the commies are back. Reds underneath your beds and that.